The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Probably not the wisest or smartest thing I've ever done in my life to start two new books at the same time, but in the providence of God, this is how it has happened. And it's been a, quite a treat to, uh, in preparation, study for both of these books. And, you know, as so I kind of asked, you know, well, what are some of the books that you would want to hear? Esther is one of those books that, that came up uh, from actually a number of people. There, there was one young lady, I, I don't want to say who she is because I don't want to embarrass her, but I'll give you a hint. She shares her name with this book. Uh, she asked uh, if this uh, book could be preached. And, you know, this is really uh, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And uh, we, we can see why the drama, the suspense, the downfall of the villain, even in a way of comedy, a very happy ending for the people of God. It's no wonder that people love it. Now, if you're looking for the book of Esther, I hope you find it. Just as I like to say, go, go to Obadiah first, and then just, no, I'm kidding. Uh, it comes right before Job. And so if you find the Psalms, just turn back a couple of books, and you will find Esther. It comes after Kings and Chronicles and Nehemiah, and then you will run into the book of Esther. And as I usually do when starting a new book, I like to begin with an introduction or an overview. And I want to begin by quoting Psalm 10, verse 1. Psalm 10, 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far, far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Have you ever felt that way? You know, we talk with one another on Sunday. We ask how each other are doing, and it's typically, oh, I'm doing fine, I'm doing well. And I, I can tell you, as someone who's been in pastoral ministry for eight years now, I can tell you that is usually not the case with people. They usually are not doing well. They're usually struggling with something. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that um, people don't have legitimate joy, people aren't going have things to be grateful for, but I can tell you they're probably struggling with something. Probably bearing some deep hardship that they're just not going to tell you about. And if someone responded like the psalmist responded, Psalm 10.1, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why are you hiding yourself in times of my trouble? If someone came into our congregation and said that, what would we say in response to that person? We would probably rebuke that person if we're honest with ourselves. Um, I tell them, no, you have to trust God. And you have to trust God the way I've trusted God. This is what I had to go through, and this is how I have trusted God. Or no, yeah, you know, don't worry, be happy. Something to that effect. Or some of these uh, tropes that we give, these, these sayings that we give to, to others. But deep down inside, many of us have probably felt this way. Where was God during all those years of my suffering? 
where is God when I suffered a great loss and have scars even to this day? Why did God allow me to go through that? Why is God not answering my prayers for relief? Or perhaps, just simply, why does God feel so distant to me? Our question even this afternoon might be the same as one as the psalmist. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Keep in mind, that's the word of God. That's the psalmist saying that in God's holy writ. Well, this is where the book of Esther comes in. It's answering that question. Uh, Esther is the Persian name for the main character of the book. Uh, her Hebrew name, uh, according to Esther 2.7, is Adassa. But she goes by her Persian name, Esther, throughout this book. And Esther means hidden. That's what Esther means. It means hidden. Uh, because Esther takes place during a time when God has hidden his face from his people. The setting is that they are in exile. Uh, they have uh, taken, were taken captive by the Babylonians about 40 years prior to the setting of the book of Esther. The Persians, however, came in and overthrew the Babylonians, and now they're in control. God's people are still in exile, and this is before the period where in Nehemiah and Ezra, they begin to return to their home country. So we're in between here. We're about right in the middle of the exile. And how God describes the exile in Deuteronomy 31 is this. I am going to hide my face from you. I'm going to be hidden from you. That's how God describes their exile. So here they are in exile where God is hiding his face from them. God is hidden. Hence, the book of Esther means hidden. Esther's name means hidden. And the well-known fact that God's name is not even mentioned in this book seems to highlight this. And so it's answering the question, where is God when we don't sense that he is with us? Where is God when I feel like he has abandoned me and I'm suffering? And I don't want to say that out loud because I know I'm going to be met with a rebuke. Where is God in the midst of my darkness? And Esther, hidden, answers that question. Because in the book of Esther, we see that God, though he's not named, is with his people. He's working to deliver them. Even when things seem hopeless, when there are no amazing miracles, signs and wonders like they saw during the, the great deliverance of the Exodus, they knew God was with them there. He did all these signs against Pharaoh to deliver them. But here, there's no signs. There's no wonders. There's no miracles. Is God even there? God's name is not even mentioned in this book. Yet, you see God's fingerprints all over this in working to deliver His people even when He is not sensed. And that's what the book of Esther is about. Outline three lessons from the book of Esther. First, we see the sovereignty of God. Second, we see the deliverance of God. And third, we see the promise of God. So first, the sovereignty of God. A common mistake I think we make today when it comes to interpreting the Scripture is isolating the book from the rest of Scripture. 
from the rest of the canon of Scripture. And this is really the influence of the modern hermeneutics. Um, we've been told that we can only preach what's in the immediate text before us, and uh, we don't want to use a theological grid to interpret a text. Now, this is not uh, held consistently, but we do hear this quite a bit, because this would, in this mindset, would be to impose an external standard on the text and not be faithful to simply exegeting what is right before us in the immediate text before us. Now, again, this is not always consistently held, and this is held to different degrees. Uh, but this, this method, I think, has influenced us to think that because something like God's sovereignty is not mentioned in the book of, of Esther, that we can't draw uh, a doctrine of God's sovereignty from it. However, because any book of the Bible is in the overall context of the canon of Scripture, and because God does not change. He remains sovereign no matter what. We can legitimately read the book of Esther through the lens of God's sovereignty. Now, God's sovereignty refers to God ordaining whatsoever comes to pass, that he is in ultimate control, even though man has a legitimate creaturely freedom and responsibility to which they are called account. And one of the things that we have to keep in mind with this is we are not going to solve the mystery. How is it that God's sovereign and ordains whatsoever comes to pass, and yet man is free and commits evil for which he is responsible? That's a mystery we're not going to solve. And if you want it, if you think there's an answer, you're going to be really disappointed. But we do see both in Scripture. We see both God's sovereignty and we see man's responsibility. In fact, because man is made in the image of God, he must be free. He must be a free moral agent, a free creature. Now, that's in distinction from when we fall into sin. We don't have free will in the sense of we have the ability to repent and turn to God. We must be delivered. Okay, so the, the, the whole idea of, of free will usually involves the doctrine of sin. Uh, we really are slaves of sin by nature. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We must be delivered from God uh, who draws us to himself. And uh, nobody's able to come to him unless he first draws him, Jesus says in John chapter 6. But that doesn't change the fact that man is a free moral agent. Man is able to make free choices by which he will be held accountable. Like when we walk through the, the line this, this uh, afternoon to eat, you had freedom of choice to, I think I'm going to get eat this instead of this. So a man has a creaturely freedom, not a divine freedom, but a creaturely freedom, yet under the sovereignty of God. And we read this in places like Acts 2.23, where it says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by the hands of lawless men. Who's responsible for the death of Christ? The greatest evil that ever occurred? Or the, the Jews who betrayed him? Yes. Or the evil man who put him on the cross? Yes. How about God? Yes. The answer is yes to all of that. So, God sovereignly ordained this, yet man is responsible. Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, referring to Christ on the cross. So it was God who did it, but Peter says, you crucified 
by the hands of lawless men. So men are responsible for their evil. But God gave them over to their evil desires, not because God wanted to do evil, but in order to fulfill his good purpose. As Genesis 5.20 says, what man intends for evil, God intends for good. So God ordained the greatest evil, but just like with all things, he intended it for good. As Acts 4.27-28 says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. God planned it, the greatest evil there ever was. Man carried it out according to God's sovereign plan. They did it for evil. God intended it for good. Why is the greatest evil that, that ever occurred good? Because you and I have eternal life because of that. As Ephesians 1.11 says, God works out all things, not just some things, but all things according to the counsel of his own will. I think a good example of this comes from 1 Kings 12 regarding Solomon's son, King Rehoboam. You don't have to turn there. You can read it later, but I'll just kind of summarize. Uh, there, King Rehoboam uh, had just ascended to the, the throne in place of his father, Solomon. The people asked for their burdens to be lightened. The older, wiser man said, listen to the people, lighten their burdens. But then you have these, these young guys that come along. And these young guys like, no, no, you crack the whip even harder. And Rehoboam decided to listen to the counsel of the young men rather than the older men, which is foolish. And Scripture says, so the king did not listen to the people. Why? For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And that word he spoke says, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you the ten tribes. So the Lord says, I am going to rip the kingdom from you and give it to Jeroboam, thus the kingdom would be split. So the reason that Rehoboam, Solomon's son, made this foolish decision is to fulfill this word. Because what's going to happen is the people are going to rise up against him now and give and say, we want Jeroboam to be the king. Now, when Rehoboam is making this decision, do you think he's thinking, let's see here, I'm going to make this decision because I want the kingdom ripped from me according to the will of the Lord. So I'm going to make a foolish decision here. No, that's not what happened. He was thinking, oh, I want to be more in control. So God worked through his foolishness to bring about his purpose, as Scripture says. It was a turn of events from the Lord. And this is exactly what we have going on in Esther. Well, we don't have any statements like in 1 Kings 11 or 12, this was a turn of, of events from the Lord. We know from Scripture that God is always sovereign. God works out all things according to the counsel of his will. And so let's just consider some coincidences in the book of Esther. Uh, the incident with Queen Vashti 
uh, where she refused to come to the uh, when the king called. Uh, and in place of Queen Vashti, Esther becomes queen. Just a coincidence. I'm just kidding. It's not, but you know, you know what I'm saying. After she becomes queen, Mordecai coincidentally, at the right place at the right time, overhears a plot to rise up against the king. Just happens to be at the right place at the right time, and he he reports this. He just happens to know the queen, Esther, and uh, his name is recorded in the king's book. Okay, he's coincidentally forgotten until one night the king, for some reason, could not sleep. Just you know, just couldn't sleep for whatever reason. And then coincidentally, he says, "Hey, why don't we? Why don't you pull out a book for me? Uh, just read me a book." And so they happen to pull out. Um, a particular book that records Mordecai's deed. He's like, yeah, just open it up and just just read whatever. Okay, they open it up. Oh, it just happens to be the deed that Mordecai did. And the king's like, wait a minute. What's been done to honor Mordecai? And he said, nothing's been done. And the king's like, well, he needs to be honored. So who's, who's in my court right now? Whoever that person is in my court right now, have him. Make sure he, he's the one that fulfills my plan in honoring Mordecai. Well, just who happens to be there? Haman happens to be there. And what's, why is Haman there at that point, at that moment? Well, Haman's there because he's coming to tell the king that he wants Mordecai to be hung on the gallows he just made for Mordecai. So he comes in, and the king says, what should be done for the person the king wants to honor? And Mordecai, or, or Haman's like, well, certainly he's talking about me. <laughs> Who else would he be talking about? So he says, this should be done. Everything he wanted, right? And then the king says, do that for Mordecai. So he needs to do this for the very man that he hates, that he wants to see hung. You think that's all a coincidence? Now, this is God working out his Plan. And then later the king happens to walk in at the very moment that it looks like he's trying to assault Esther when he's actually just trying to beg for his life. So he coincidentally uh, gets hung by the king and hung on the very gallows he built for Mordecai. While Mordecai gets his house and gets honored. All of this is from the hand of a sovereign God who is working out all things according to his will. And this is even the case when he hides his face. When he seems absent, as implied in Esther by the conspicuous absence of his name. As one commentator put it, the book of Esther shows that God is present even when he is most absent. When there are no miracles, dreams, or visions, no charismatic leaders, no prophets to interpret what is happening, and not even an explicit mention of God. He is there. But, but what, for what purpose is God working everything out? And this brings us to the second lesson we learn from the book of Esther. So first, the sovereignty of God. Second is the deliverance of God. It is one thing to hear that God is sovereign. He works out all things sovereignly. And you may have heard that before. You may have heard it many times. But it's quite another to hear that God is sovereign for your good. That He's good in it. So if it's just, yeah, God 
let that happen to you. Deal with it. He's sovereign. This leads you to say, well, God caused pain in my life. He must want me to suffer. And this will cause you to not trust him, but to withdraw from him. And this will cause depression because you realize that someone much more powerful than you, the sovereign God whom you are to obey, is against you to cause suffering for you. And that doesn't sound very hopeful. And it will lead to anxiety because someone in control of your life does not have your best interests at heart. And he might just bring suffering and punishment upon you at any moment. And you just don't know when this capricious God is going to strike you next. And this typically leads to a works righteousness. Well, okay, how do I get him to not strike me? If I'm just really good, if I'm good enough, if I don't do anything wrong, then maybe I won't draw his wrath. Maybe he will just leave me alone if he doesn't notice me. And this will actually lead to resenting God because, one, you can't live, live up to his rigorous standards because none of us have. None of us can. We all deserve his judgment. And two, your life is still not going to go well in a sin-cursed world. In a sin-cursed world, as we learn in Ecclesiastes, we will suffer. Jesus says, in this life you will have trouble. We are going to go through hardship in this life. And then we begin to question, well, if God was sovereign over that, then he must be against me. And so what a miserable life to live. It's living under the ministry and rigor of the law. Thankfully, this is not who God is. God sovereignly works out all things for good. And you may wonder, well, okay, if that's true, then why does God sovereignly bring suffering into my life? Well, it's because God uses suffering in our life for good. How can that be used for good? Are you able to sympathize with somebody when you have had just a perfect, good, perfectly good life? Or are you able to sympathize with someone and bring them comfort when you yourself have gone through suffering? Now you know what that person's going through and you yourself are then able to sympathize with them in ways that others can't. As Second Corinthians 1 says, the reason why we go through difficulty is so that we would experience God's comfort for the sake of comforting others. And there's so many other things. It's to draw us near to Him where we wouldn't if life was always comfortable. It's to deal with the deadly poison within us. Pride, selfishness, and self-righteousness. You know, we willingly allow a doctor to cut our body up in surgery and cause weeks of pain and recovery. Why would we do that? Why on earth would anyone do that? Well, it's for the purpose of removing something harmful in our bodies. We have surgeries to remove cancer. We have open heart surgeries to, present, uh, to prevent heart attacks. We even have surgeries for even a greater quality of life, like back surgery for back pain. Like, okay, my back really hurts, so I'm going to put myself under intense pain for a while, or knee surgery, put myself under intense pain for a while, because I know there's a better purpose in it. So the pain has a purpose. And if that's the way it is with human physicians, then how much more are great physicians? 
And yes, there are times that are just so painful, but the Lord brings us through it. He who is infinitely wise knows how to bring us through hardships, to use suffering for our good, to draw us near to Him, to see the glory of Christ, and to help those who go through suffering, which is a common experience in this sin-cursed world. And one day, all suffering, of course, will be removed forever after this short, vain life is over. But what we see in Esther is that God does not prevent suffering from happening to His people, but nevertheless is at work for His people even when God seems to be absent and hiding His face. So in chapter 3, Haman convinces the king to sign off on his scheme to destroy the Jews, the people of God. Now, we have to keep in mind this is not a fairy tale. We like this story, but it's real history. Imagine if the government had an order to go out and kill all of God's people to eradicate them. And the U.S. Supreme Court signed off on it, and all the branches of our government supported it. Now, that's not supposed to happen in America, but it certainly is a possibility one day, given how much the world hates Christians. But this is what has happened many times in history, and this is what we see going on right here in Esther. In Esther 3.13, it says, Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So this does not look good at all. This causes Mordecai to mourn greatly, to express that mourning in the customary way of sackcloth and ashes. And this is where Esther comes in. It is all on her to go to the king and tell him this. And now, in 21st century America, we're like, well, I have a right to barge in the, 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 the White House. It's the people's house. It's supposed to be. Uh, but back then, you did not barge in on the king unless you wanted to die. Uh, that's the way it was back then. You would die if you barged in on the king. And so she has a choice to make now. She had not been called by the king. She had not been summoned by him, but she knows she needs to go tell him this. And it could cost her her life. And not only would it cost her her life, but this plot against the Jews would still continue to go on. And so she risked her life to go tell about this plot. And through her, God reversed the enmity and suffering of his people. He allowed that suffering to happen to begin with. But then he used her to reverse that suffering where God's people then rose up and defeated their enemies. And not only that, but Haman, whom seemed like he would receive high honor to be exalted, ended up being brought low while Mordecai was exalted. So God reversed this curse on his people and turned things upside down. And this points us to the redemption that we have in Christ. It may seem like the world is closing in on us, rising up to defeat God's people, as Satan waxes strong on us with intense hatred. Uh, this has made people fearful and, and looking for a human leader who, who will lead us in changing the culture to 
bring in a Christian nation or utopia here in order to make us feel safe and basically turn things on our enemies. However, our deliverance is found in the one who saved his people by perishing at the wrath of the king. And this is one of the differences between Esther, who is a type of Christ, but Christ, who's the anti-type. Christ does not say, if I perish, I perish. He says, when I perish, I will perish. I will perish for the sake of my people facing the wrath of the king, which is well deserved by us who have sinned against him. But Christ came to perish as he came to suffer and die. The wrath of God for our sins so that we would be eternally delivered from perishing. And so we have that type here in the book of Esther. And in the end, God's people will be honored before all, while God's enemies and all that hatred and persecution against God's people will be brought to an end and they will be put to everlasting shame. And this, and this is all according to the promise of God, which brings us to the third lesson from the book of Esther. So first we saw his sovereignty, second, deliverance, and third, the promise of God. See, what we have going on in Esther is the battle of the two seeds, the battle of the two offspring. The lineage of both Mordecai and Haman are given. In Esther 2.5, we read Mordecai's lineage that he was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose uh, his name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Why does that matter? Why does it matter that he's the son of Kish? And in Esther 3.7, we're introduced to Haman's lineage. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamanadatha. So, why does this matter? Why does the lineage matter in Scripture? Well, Mordecai is in the line of Kish. You know who Kish was? He is the father of Saul, who became king in Israel. Do you know who Saul was supposed to go out and fight? He used to go out and fight the Amalekites. Do you know who the, the king of the Amalekites were at that time? Agag. So you have Mordecai tied to King Saul, and you have Haman tied to King Agag, bringing us back to that battle between God's people and the Amalekites. And the Amalekites... You remember the Amalekites from Exodus 17? They rose up against God's people in the wilderness, and God says, I'm going to have war with Amalek all those days. And this is why we see in Esther 3.10 and Esther 8.1, Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamanadath, the enemy of the Jews. He's described as the enemy of the Jews in the book of Esther. He is the enemy of God's people, and that's what the lineage is about. It's more than just a battle here, here and now. It's a battle between two offspring, between two seeds. But it goes back even before Amalek. You know when the battle of the seeds began? 
began in Genesis 3.15. There God declared to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is where the battle between two lines began. Two offspring began. This is ultimately the battle between Christ and the devil. Foreshadowing Christ's victory over his and our enemies for his exaltation, for our deliverance and the exaltation of his people. And the book of Esther is showing us, we who are strangers and aliens, we who are part of God's people, we have an enemy. And the enemy wants to rise up against us. But who's going to win in the end? It's going to be Christ. God will put His, because and because we are His, our enemies to open shame, while He exalts and publicly honors us. But this came at the cost of the seed of the woman, our Lord Jesus Christ, being put to open shame. Christ was treated as the enemy like Haman and was hanged. And it was the worst kind of hanging. He was hanged on a tree to reveal that he was cursed of God. But he became a curse for us. He took our place because we, like Haman, are enemies of God because of our sin. But the Lord loved us, his enemies, before the foundation of the world. And we who are in Christ are part of that seed of Christ. The Lord who loved us as his enemies had his only begotten son take our place by being hanged on the tree instead of us so that we would be honored and exalted. But it was at this hanging on the tree that Christ put Satan and his cosmic powers to open shame. The gallows that Satan meant for Christ using Judas and his evil men to betray Christ and falsely accuse and crucify him, turned out to be his own gallows. Because Colossians 2.15 says it was at the cross that Satan and his minions were put to open shame. And he lost his power. How? He can no longer accuse us before God because our sins have been dealt with in full. And so now we can actually deal with our sin rather than trying to defend ourselves all the time, justify ourselves, covering our sin in our pride and self-righteousness in order to prove our righteousness and becoming angry when anyone brings any correction or criticism to us while trying to point out other sins. Rather, we rest in Christ. We rest in His blood and His righteousness which has forever removed all our accusations from His sight as we wait for His enemies to be made a footstool for His feet. So ultimately, Esther shows us that when God seems hidden, when we're suffering, all we can see is our suffering, and we don't see the face of God, that God is working in His sovereignty to deliver us according to His promise, showing that Christ will be victorious. And all of us who are in Him will be victorious in Him. And that is why we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And so may God bless our time in the book of Esther. Amen. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we do ask that you would bless our time in Esther. And as we just go through this wonderful book, we thank you for this book. We thank you for your love for us and you showing us that even when we don't see it, you're working behind the scenes. Even when your face is hidden, you are most present. Help us to see that. May you bless us in this book. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.